When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Why should CBUS members have insurance through CBUS Super? Maybe it's because we understand the risks of working in our industries. Maybe it's because we offer cover that is tailored to protect building and construction workers, even those working at heights. Or maybe it's all of these reasons. So why not consider CBUS Super? CBUS for all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, visit cbussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. I had to fail, had to fall just for what I did well. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. England and the West Indies have just played out the second test of the Wisden Trophy. It's one all. We'll be looking at that uh, pretty amazing comeback and a pretty ridiculous test match from Ben Stokes uh, in the second part of the show. A couple of tests in that series going to the fifth day as people around the world have been starved for cricket. And uh, it was particularly interesting, Adam, seeing all of these Australian sports fans and South Africans and so on around the world all glued to this test series because there's been nothing else going on. Yeah, I'm used to kind of being the only one, uh, at, you know, obviously in a different time zone, but uh, as in not at sort of half past seven when the day starts, but perhaps like one or two or three in the morning when most people are switched mm. off unless it's an Ashes test match, but different dynamic. Indeed, it's a different dynamic for you and I today because it's me sitting up at late, very late at night when I should be well and truly in bed with a uh, young baby and you up very early, which is unusual for you. So if you hear the, yeah. the, 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 <laughs> our voices sounding differently, it's because this is, tends to be flipped around where it's early morning my time and Jeff, who's more proficient working at silly hours, um, doing it, uh, burning the midnight oil, as they say. But yes, uh, the, a lot of Australian fans have been doing that as well, watching this series. And yeah, two test matches ending uh, where the results were all on the table at the tea break on the final day. Although it's fair to say the tie was out of the equation, I suppose, uh, at tea uh, today because <laughs> Ben Stokes made that breakthrough right on the cusp of tea, which meant that Blackwood wouldn't be there. And if they had any chance of having a, a crazy tilt in the last couple of hours, he would have been integral to it. But, but all the same, it's, you know, the fact that they managed to, to win that having lost a day to rain needing to set it up with a creative declaration this morning and bowling really well uh, that means that we've got a proper series on our hands and it's been an excellent return to the game 
The ICC have been busy after not being busy for a while. They've had their meeting and ruled on what's going on with the 43 World Cups that we're going to have in the next couple of <laughs> years, so we'll look at that shortly. Sachin's been busy. We'll check up on that as well. Uh, we've been busy digging around on Nerd Pledge. There's plenty to go through on the show today. I thought we'd start with some sad news. Barry Jarman passed away during the week. One of the few Australian wicketkeepers to captain the country. Uh, he was aged 84, lived a good life. And I remember reading up about Jarman when... Tim Payne got the captaincy because it was a real anomaly that a, a wicketkeeper mm. was f- the full-time test captain because aside from Payne, there'd been Gilchrist subbing in for six tests, I think, and then Jack Blackham, who did one test, and Barry Jarman, who did one test, filling in, and then Billy Murdoch, sort of the opposite, where he was a full-time captain who subbed in as the wicketkeeper for one test, and, <laughs> and they're still, to this day, the only wicketkeepers who've, who've captained Australia. So Barry Jarman, one of uh, a rare, uh, rare cohort there. And an unusual career, kind of an old school career. Back in the day when you used to have like a substitute wicketkeeper who'd go on tour, you know, you'll still have that in some Australian tour parties. England, they'll always take a, a second keeper and perhaps the Caribbean. But beyond that, they just fly someone out, don't they? I mean, if someone breaks yeah. a finger in India, like I think that was 2013, wasn't it? Matthew Wade was injured and, and Brad Haddon was flown in um, at the last minute to, to keep in one of those test matches. And uh, but, but in that era, so Jarman Dabuzi, in 1959 as a 23-year-old and but of course Wally Grout um, takes over and, and Jarman ends up being almost a professional tourist occasionally getting a test match when Grout wasn't available uh, through injury but he, he did get his opportunity as first choice keeper from 67 68 but he was already 31 from then sort of towards the end of his career back in the era when you would retire when you were 32 or 33 but not before he got the chance mm. to as you say captain Australia in a in a test match uh, at Headingley in 1968 which was was the test that guaranteed that Australia would retain the Ashes, a draw there at Leeds. Uh, so, and then I, I sort of more remember him though, Jeff, as a, a match official. Sort of growing up, he'd often be the, the match referee around the world when, mm. especially when we first got cable television and we were seeing test matches beamed into Australia, um, late 90s. I, I sort of, I felt like Barry Jarman w- was always the match referee that was doing the job <laughs> when England was playing, notably uh, in the West Indies in 1998 yeah. or something like that when they had the, the test match at Jamaica um, called off because in the, the same way as, as, as Richie Richardson always seems to be the match referee that's uh, it that, exactly right and the other famous test of course that Jarman oversaw was the Centurion test match in 2000 where um, well infamous really uh, the, the Cronier leather jacket game uh, and, mm. and you know Jarman wasn't without his controversy either he had very strong views about Matai Muradurland uh, action which wouldn't necessarily align with my own now, but I think at the time that echoed the way a lot of Australians thought that, well, he's just a chucker, end of story, and, and Jarman was, was fairly forthright in in putting that view uh, when, when he was, um, when, when Morley rather was, was doing his thing and taking hundreds and hundreds of wickets. So, And he was always part of the conversation around the Adelaide Test match, Jeff, because we, um, you know, Nugget Rees, who becomes the team mascot in those Adelaide Test matches, wears a baggy green, and of course that's Barry Jarman's baggy green because he worked for uh, uh, Barry in his sports retail uh, shop for many years from when he was a young kid and so on. So there's been that link back to the to the mm. modern Australian test side th- through Jarman. So uh, yeah, an important figure in Australian cricket passed away at age of 84. We spoke on the last show about how some childish jokes never get 
less funny no matter how old you are. And, and I hope that Barry Jarman would have appreciated a, a slightly off-colour joke because the way that I found out uh, about his death was watching the, you know, the ABC uh, ticker, where, you know, where they have the, the, the rolling stuff down the bottom of the mm. screen. You know, that headline came across that he'd passed away, but the other headline above that, the bigger one, was a very unfortunate typo from someone in, in the ABC's um, captioning department, which said the big sort of headline text was, Shart Attack... <laughs> Um, and, I, and I, I think they actually meant a marine animal, um, but they unfortunately subbed something else in there. So it said, shart attack, and then went on to say, 10-year-old Tasmanian boy recovering in hospital after ordeal. I did see the, uh, the reporter from the ABC who had the, uh, the shart attack that came underneath their story, and she was most proud of that being uh, a typo attached to one of her yarns. <laughs> so that was, I mean, that was twinned with the very sombre news about Barry. So I thought, well, I, I hope he had a sense of humour that would have appreciated that because it was, it, it, it twins together beautifully for me as a reader. But uh, I think he did. I think what, what, what sort of shone through in all the obituaries that were written across the weekend and various interviews that former players did was he did have a fantastic sense of humour and he was, um, I think Daniel Bredig uh, had in his piece that um, being the sub keeper back in that, era meant that he was kind of responsible for the social engagements and making sure there was mm. a, a degree of conviviality on tour between different groups and, and, and so on. So uh, I think that, yep. yes, he would appreciate Shart Attack being linked, albeit tangentially, <laughs> to his passing. Um, now, you've, you've had a victory during the week, Adam. <laughs> it's, not every, it's not every week that, that you get a, a win, but this has been your white whale. Uh, you know, this has been the Valjean to your Javert. Uh, and, and you finally had a breakthrough with the no balls being automated in test cricket. You, you got there for the Women's T20 World Cup and then reverted for the tests because under the current... Uh, agreement it wasn't catered for or whatever that's still going to be the case but t tell us the story what's going to happen um, how did it come about yeah so I well uh, I was very angry on Twitter about this last week at Southampton uh, as I have been as you say for a number of years now every time I, it's come up <laughs> well, 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 I never really was for me the whole story goes back to Waka Yunus in 2001 bowling massive no balls in that one day series uh, try series with Australia and England and them having the side on camera and at the time feeling quite sorry for David Shepherd, who was the man who was being pinged as being irresponsible so I, I had that in the back of my mind and of course we were at Wellington in 2016 when the when the Adam Voges, uh, Doug Bracewell, Richard Illingworth affair played out and then I was at Lords later that year when Alex Hales and Nawan Pradeep a similar thing happened which led towards the Sri Lankans doing a little protest on the balcony at Lords where they I think they turned their flag upside down or something like that but in any case they were furious mm. about what had happened to um, Nawan Pradeep in the same way the New Zealanders were about Doug Bracewell so I kind of got on this story way back then and have been hectoring the ICC about it but thankfully they were on this too. I mean, Jeff Allardyce from the ICC is kind of like the cricket czar in there at Dubai. He agreed mm -hmm. with the proposition and was integral behind getting the trial in 2016. Then it hit the fence and then there was 
mm-hmm. a, a question of whether it was worth the money given how many nobles were called by the technology in Israel, all this sort of stuff. But as we know, the lived experience of watching international cricket is that a number of nobles are bowled every game. None of them are called and the umpires clearly aren't watching because they don't want to find themselves in that unfortunate situation that Richard Illingworth was in, in 2016. And fair enough. So last weekend at Southampton, a shitload of nobles were bowled, uh, not just Shannon Gabriel, but the ones he bowled were highlighted by the Sky Cricket coverage uh, in one particular session. So, yeah, I, I put in a number of calls last week and, and found out that uh, not only have the ICC agreed to um, roll this out for the, what they're calling the uh, the one-day Super League, so that's essentially the equivalent of the World Test Championship for 50-over cricket, uh, which was mm-hmm. meant to start in May this year, but of course due to COVID it's been pushed back, but it'll serve as both a, a qualification tournament for the World Cup, so the rankings will be taken from that, and also just mm-hmm. a structure around 50-over cricket. Gone are the days, well, gone will be the days of you know meaningless bilateral one-day series. They'll all have points attached to them in a broader league that'll, that'll continue in two-year cycles. But the ICC chief executives, unbeknownst to any of us, had agreed to this, which is great. After the Women's World Cup, when it worked really, really well, they're like, no, this is a good idea. We'll do it for the for that tournament. We'll do it for the uh, World T20, which, of course, has been delayed and will come to later. We'll do it for the Women's World Cup. And I'm like, how good's this? What about Test Cricket? They're like, yeah, we'll probably get there. It's just that uh, they've already agreed to the playing conditions for the World Test Championship. So that cycle ends in the middle of next year. The ICC chief executives will consider automating the front foot no ball before 21 to 23. It'll be signed off by the board. As I understand it, it's a fait accompli. So we're watching the last handful of test matches, I suppose, between now and June next year, where, where it will be this sort of dilapidated, antiquated system before we move into the um, the 21st century, albeit 20 years too late. But I think that there is a... I mean, it's, it's not a speculative story. I know categorically, like, this is definitely happening for the white ball stuff, and it feels very, very likely it'll happen in the test matches as well. You do wonder why there couldn't be a system where they could make a, an adjustment as minor as this midway through the process without having to say we'll do it in a year's time but that's that's the way things work at the ICC. Oh, the, I, think, uh, I think they could I mean theoretically just for what it's worth I should state that they do have the provision to do that now they could alter the playing conditions that's within their remit. I guess the question is and this is how it was explained to me right now when the ICC chief execs meet they're not worried about the front foot no ball uh, law and the interpretation of it they've, they've got a lot on their plate they're not they're not obviously not meeting in person so the, the mm-hmm. assumption is is that They'll get to this. It's just not first order business right now, which I think is a reasonable position given everything else that's going on. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think you could also argue that at a time when, say, during these tests in the last uh, couple of weeks when no one's been watching anything else because that's all there is on, the, the problems that come up in those tests are more important because True. They're, they're so visible. But uh, I suppose getting done eventually will be better than not getting done at all. So our CBUS super performer for the week is every bowler who has got a wicket off a no-ball and had it taken away <laughs> in the last couple of decades. You can say it's their fault. In It's partly their fault, but um, it, it's also... Uh, it's Every single time it's happened, it's been a, a frustration or sometimes a joy for the batting side. C- can we go the other way? Can we go... It goes to Doug Bracewell for being the man who had to... Well, Doug Bracewell, Richard Illingworth, I mean, I feel like uh, I feel like Richard Illingworth, who, who's had a you know uh, not the best couple of weeks on the tools at Southampton and Manchester, mm. but given the the heartache that he went through at the Basin 
reserve that week five years ago, four years ago rather, and Doug Bracewell being the man who had the no ball called only to watch Adam Voges add 232 additional runs and win the match in the series almost single-handedly. When when we should add, it wasn't a no ball. He bowled this a is legitimate the whole delivery, yeah. bowled him clean. It was called as a no ball and the wicket was struck off. Yeah, that's right, which is why umpires stopped calling it because they didn't want to end up in that situation. So I think we, we give it to those two as joint winners of the Seabus Super Performer of the Week, Jeff. All right, I think that's very fair and, and I think it's fair to remember that Seabus Investments products and services are tailored to meet the unique needs of the building and construction industry, <laughs> including fit-for-purpose insurance and that's what this will be, an insurance policy. Go to seabussuper.com.au if you'd like to get a PDS and work out what they offer and uh, remember the past performance is not a reliable indicator of a future performance. The ICC, we spoke about them. They've finally had their meeting, the one that they postponed and have been fiddling about with, about the World T20. We know what's happening now. Uh, it's been officially postponed. We always knew that this year's men's World T20 that was supposed to be in October would be postponed but it hadn't been formally announced and they had been denying that any decision had been made when it was very evident that a decision would have to be made. It's formally postponed but we don't exactly know until when so there'll be one T20 World Cup in the same time frame next year, another in the same time frame the year after and then the 50 over World Cup that was supposed to be in March 2023 will be pushed back to that same window of October, November 2023. One of the T20 World Cups will be in India, one will be in Australia but they haven't agreed yet what order they will be in because the window that could be the Australian one was originally supposed to be the Indian one. Do they both get postponed? Does the Indian one stay where it is and the Australian one get postponed two years? We don't know. Uh, how many World Cups do we need in one sport? We're going to have them all. That's the point. Yeah, I, and even though that does look a bit silly, I mean, you look at the, the, the statement they put out and a World Cup in 21, 22 and 23 all at the same time of the year. But at the same time, it's really well done I think uh, having us knowing that for the next three October November windows there will be men's World Cups and yes there is the 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 the, um, the careful wording around Australia and India which CA have added to I should add um, not long before we're recording uh, they, they've said in a statement uh, that it's still to be determined in order to allow the ICC to continue to assess the impact of COVID-19 uh, and increase the chance of staging two successful T20 World Cups so I guess that makes sense that if one of the two countries ends up in, in serious COVID strife or, or mm. remains I should say in, in serious COVID strife in October next year they'll, they'll go to the other one but the 2023 World Cup being pushed back um, also works I think uh, and, and the other point to make here which could be extremely exciting if it is Australia that hosts the World Cup next year it'll mean that we'll have a World Cup T20 World Cup straight into a men's and women's ashes all in the same summer which we came off the back of that in England last year and that was pretty cool mm -hmm. and we never thought that could happen again and just due to circumstance it might uh, in the space of a couple of years really. So even though the T20 World Cup's over in about three weeks, maybe four weeks if you include the qualifying tournament on the front as a World Cup, I don't but some do, that's, uh, that's a lot of cricket and, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, and, and the one really good bit of news out of all of this is that the Women's World Cup, the 50-over World Cup in February, March 
next year in New Zealand has not been messed with. We were we were just waiting for them to, to screw over the women's tournament because it, we've seen that sort of thing happen so often in the past in terms of priorities. But at the moment, that's planned to still go ahead. The fact that it's in New Zealand is very helpful given that they've got the virus under control. Uh, the, they've only got eight teams in that tournament, so it's more manageable to try to get the teams in and quarantined and able to play and so we're tentatively optimistic that that will go ahead as planned yeah that, that was that was uh that was bad journalism from me last week i i knew that uh, a week and a half ago that they weren't going to move the women's tournament but for whatever reason i didn't follow it up and write the story but yes the the women's tournament uh as i understand at the moment they've uh, sort of given it that ring fencing if there's going to be a tournament as we have had confirmed today by the ICC, it's going to be the women's tournament. However, uh, they're, they're giving themselves the flexibility to move it back if they need to for quarantine reasons. So um, if, for instance, uh, there was some change to domestic scheduling and bilateral series because of COVID, so let's say India at Australia, this is probably the most obvious example of this, if, if their series gets pushed back and then there's a different quarantine between Australia and New Zealand because of COVID, you know, a quarantine that we don't have at the moment but we might experience down the track they've given themselves that flexibility so they're not saying that the World Cup will definitely start on the 7th of February but they are working towards it starting on the 7th of February if that makes sense so a bit of flexibility, a bit of an insurance policy there as well but all signs uh, are positive out of that meeting because at one stage, four or five weeks ago, um, all the talk was they'll, they'll just pop the men's tournament in there and, and the women can, can make do the following year and, and obviously that would have been a terrible outcome yeah, good news all round on that front. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I like at least the consistency of the October-November ones. You just, every October there's a World Cup. That's how it will be for, for the rest <laughs> of our lives. Uh, we, we had... Um, uh, we're going to connect to a different World Cup tangentially. So uh, last weekend on the weekend edition, we rebooted the interview with Kate Cross, which uh, was one of the best chats that we've done I think it, it's um, really wonderful how how frank and open she was to speak with us we, we had a similarly good conversation with Jimmy Neesham during the men's 50 over World Cup last year we sat down at the Oval and recorded that conversation so we're going to put that up again this coming weekend um, and, and been enjoying how well these rebooted conversations have been received by the people who didn't hear them the first time around as well as giving us the chance to do some some more in-depth nerd pledge than we do on this early in the week show yeah that's right we mentioned it on the weekend show that our, our nerd pledge segment will get increasingly um, shuffled into the the weekend show because it fits better now that we've got more to talk about early in the week with cricket being actually played um, and that's how we'll sequence it but yeah the, the kate cross interview i think that perhaps last year it got a little bit lost due to when we put it out if i recall correctly it went out just before the Men's Ashes series was about to start. Um, you know, there was lots going on, uh, and it just meant mm. that even though um, yeah, it, it, there were a lot of final word episodes going up, the daily edition and so on, but I th it felt like this time around a lot more people heard it, in including her, her dad, David Cross, uh, the, uh, the the famous uh, West Ham footballer who, of course, won the FA Cup uh, with the club uh, known as Psycho uh, in his playing days, and he 
He dropped us a tweet saying, this is worth a listen if you or your kids have mental health problems. My daughter speaks openly about her issues and how she overcame them. She comes on at the 45-minute mark of this podcast. I hope it can help in some small way, not weak to speak. And that was, like, really lovely that, you know, that people were listening to it and the message was cutting through. And the Jimmy Neesham interview, in a similar vein, it went out when we were pumping out tons of podcasts so it may be the case that you didn't grab it the first time around but it was a, a, a lovely conversation a, a relatively short conversation as well so it won't sort of take you ages to get through or anything like that and it all relates to our tie-in of course with Lord's Taverners who are doing great work I- in the mental health area at the moment through COVID so we're, we're glad these weekend editions are, are going so well we also um, had the interview with Ian Smith go up a couple of weeks ago out of calling the shots and Brian Henderson who's the big boss at Sky Cricket tweeted that out uh, on the weekend, which I was thrilled to see. He said that it's a very good interview uh, about Ian Smith talking about TV commentary and a number of other commentators jumped on that, including um, Bumble Lloyd and others who'd listened to it and and tweeted it out. So that was quite nice that uh, the final word, uh, weekend editions are are getting some traction out there, Jeff. (laughs) We're coming up to the halfway mark. Before we do, let's have a quick little round of Nerd Pledge. The game of nerds, the game of pledges, the game we play with people on our patron page who support the show by sending us a mysterious quantity of dollars and cents that relate to cricket in some way the number does and we have to work out what the number is the first on our list today is is a confession and a request for forgiveness i'm very good at begging for extensions um through my university days so Tamara Palmer has put through $2.14 with the clue that says, and, and I might throw this out there to the listeners as well, a classy dude and family fave, there's a story to it and it involves wisdom, the West Indies and subsequent additions to the family. Now, Adam and I have done quite a lot of digging on this and are yet to uncover the bones of Richard III underneath a supermarket car park. So if you have uh, any thoughts about what this... 2.14 or 2.14 or 21.4 or whatever it might be, uh, you, you can drop us a line. But we'll be we'll be researching more, Tamara, and we'll be coming back to this on the weekend. One that I know that Adam has a lot of information about is from Nicholas Gordon, $3.45. Adam? Well, I don't think it's going to be um, about Trevor Hones. It might be a Trevor Hones ultra, but I, I doubt it. Why not? I, I, I doubt the, the it will be. The big cracker fans. <laughs> lots, of, lots of cracker freaks out there in the wild. Of course, he Can't was a three, 345 as a cap number. Uh, no, 345 has uh, other um, links, which I'm... I'm going to back in. Uh, so mm-hmm. Charlie McCartney uh, made the quickest triple ton of all time. Uh, he made 345 at Trent Bridge. In 1921, so it was the Australians playing against Nottinghamshire in, in one of their tour games. It's the highest score made by a batsman in a single day of play. He reached 300 in 205 minutes, and the innings took less than four hours all up. So just 232 <laughs> minutes with 47 fours and four sixes. It's still the highest score by an Australian in England. But yes, 345. Right. And, and that's, that's the era, isn't it, where to get a six you had to like hit it out of the parish. Yes, that's landed, right. Landed in a, a cider cart going on its way to the next town or something. Well, yeah, well, bat- batting with a twig on a gigantic ground. But yeah, that that's right. So yeah, the numbers are, it's before they counted balls, unfortunately. And look, you can go back and work out the balls 
reverse engineer the balls account. Now, I, I know that because our mate Andrew Sampson had me take some photographs of some scorecards in Zimbabwe for him a couple of years ago so he could do precisely that. So he would go and almost replay the game based on the scorecard and work out who faced what mm. ball um, in the traditional conventional scorecard. So if there is right. a scorecard of, of McCartney against Nottinghamshire in the in the long-form sense, I'm sure we could work out how many balls he faced. But the fact that he was only out there for 232 minutes for 345, that's just a, 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 a crazy number. Of course, McCartney was one of only a handful so of... So less than four hours. And that's got to include some breaks as well because there'd be a, you know, the, the time... Well, it's two sessions, right? You, you'd, you'd imagine yeah. that that's just two, just straight up two sessions. So maybe he... And that's, that's the era when they bowled far more overs, of course. So let's say yeah. he might have been out there for but, 80 but overs all up. Time, your innings time includes lunch, well, for instance. Like that's 40 minutes onto, your, onto the time of your innings battered. True. Not always, though. That's a, that's a inconsistent uh, interpretation. So okay. I'm going to, for the sake of being conservative, let's say that it wasn't counted and 232 minutes meant, you know, what it looks like on the tin. So two sessions at the crease, roughly 40 overs a session. So he would have been out there for 80 overs all up. Let's say he faced half the deliveries. How many, um, how many balls in 40 overs? 240? So he's made... 240. He's made 345 in about 240 balls. So, <laughs> I reckon well. he might have been hogging more than half the strike if he was going like that, though, to be fair. I, I think his partners might have been feeding him. Yeah, and I think, Jeff, the last time we were talking about McCartney, wasn't it when Warner made his century in a session at Sydney in yep. 2017? McCartney did likewise also McCartney at the SCG? Yeah, McCart- no, McCartney did it in England um, at Leeds, I think. McCartney, right. McCartney, Bradman, Trumper, Majid Khan, Warner, and then I think there's one more in there. The one, there's one more recent, which was Shikhar Dhawan against Afghanistan when they smashed Afghanistan in two days. Oh yeah, that's right. In, in that that test match, so he he managed to get onto the list in slightly less illustrious fashion, I guess. <laughs> So that, I think that's, that's spot on. So thank you so much, Nicholas Gordon, three, four, five. What else you got for me, Jeff? One more before we move on with the show from Kerry Sandu. Thank you, Kerry, with $2.64. What might 264 mean? I reckon we had 264 recently and we, we talked about Tom Latham's 264, uh, which uh, I don't know why it was relevant, but there was a clue. It was New Zealand related and we, and we went with that on that occasion and we ruled out another 264 and I thought it was just worth uh, getting into that story a little bit more so Jeff you and I have spent a lot of time with Jim Maxwell at the SCG over the last five or six years it's always a joy of Mm -hmm. course Jim spent so much of his childhood there and um, you know in turn 45 nearly 50 years of his professional life as well but he often talks about John Watkins, who um, played his one and only test match in 1972-73. And Jim, as a young lad, was doing his um, audition tape for the ABC that week. So he was in a separate box um, recording him, his own voice in order to try and um, get himself picked up by the, the national broadcaster. So he remembers that test really, uh, really well. It was Australia-Pakistan. And that's the one test match that John Watkins played. And I think... Cricket. A lot of cricket fans will know vaguely. Oh, he's that guy that choked on Dubu and kind of never played again. The leg spinner who couldn't get it on the pitch, and all of that's true. But 
I, I just thought it was worth putting a bit more meat on the bones because I, I, it's it's a great story. It's a great Australian story, I think, as well. A, a story that perhaps couldn't happen almost anywhere else in, in that era because Watkins was nowhere near it a few years earlier. He decided to not play in the conventional sort of grade system and first-class system. He was, play, he was from Newcastle and was playing, like, you know, sort of local cricket there. He was picked for a number of northern New South Wales sides at the back end of the 60s, which included him playing mm. some games against the the, the, the the touring Indians. And then in 1971-72, we did well, I should say, against the Indians. They beat them. Uh, and he played for them a couple of times in the next few years. Bit of a novelty. They would, they'd play this tour game. Whoever was out in, in the country, England, played against them in 1970-71. But in 71-72, um, the rest of the World Eleven, when they were playing in lieu of South Africa, came up and played northern New South Wales as well and he did really well so and after that New South Wales proper said well why don't you come down and, and play some shield cricket and come back to the sort of formal professional stream he didn't want to do that before because of travel in Sydney and, and all the rest of it but he made the call moved down and by the end of that summer he was playing first class cricket albeit not very well he, he got a couple of games and he wasn't sort of um, posting huge numbers he wasn't taking heaps of wickets but he was kind of in there and thereabouts in, in the New South, New South Wales setup. and you press fast forward to the next season so 72-73 and he's back playing for northern New South Wales again and they beat Pakistan and he takes six for 38 and they go alright then you played for New South Wales last year you know the SCG and they picked him for the test match ahead of Kerry O'Keefe. Right. So out of nowhere. Out of nowhere. He wasn't even playing for New South Wales at the time, but he had the previous year. He was playing in this northern New South Wales uh, league side, essentially. And because he did well against Pakistan, they, they tossed him in there. And that's how he ends up on the SCG, you know, on the big stage in a test match, only having played five first-class games at that stage for 10 wickets. And in the end, it is a bit of a mess. He takes none for 21 from six overs back in the era when wides didn't count against the bowler's name. I think he bowled half a dozen wides. And according to Jim, a couple of those ended up somewhere that square leg that they, they went quite horrendously for him uh, and he's talked about that Sunday subsequently saying it's his only regret in cricket and that still haunts him a little bit but nonetheless it, it's it's still something that he's proud to have done and he, and he should be proud because he ended up being integral to Australia winning the test match but not with the ball but with the bat so his highest first class score um, in those five games was 12 um, he comes in in the second innings with Australia having had a first innings deficit it's 7 for 94 when he walks out at number 9 he puts on 83 with Bob Massey that's for 3 hours makes 36 off 142 balls gets Australia up to 184, which means that Pakistan are chasing 159 in the fourth innings. And lo and behold, Dennis Lilly and Bob Massey and Max Walker bowl out the Pakistanis for 106. So he doesn't get to bowl in that in that fourth innings. He does take the, the last catch to, to win Australia the test, but if not for Watkins' work with the bat, uh, they wouldn't have won the test match. So whilst he's remembered for that fateful spell and, 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 the, and the next tour he went on as well, they did take him to the West Indies and it went... He lost his confidence, but he was completely shot. He was one of three leg spinners to go on the tour, and he took some wickets playing in the first-class tour games. But, um, I mean, Keith Stackpole, the vice-captain, then later described him as the luckiest player to ever represent Australia and said that one ball that he bowled nearly hit the square leg umpire. So with the widest full toss he'd ever seen, <laughs> Stackpole's quoted as saying. But after that, um, he, he never played first-class cricket again. He played 10 first-class games, 
five of them for Australia or Australian 11s, five for New South Wales. And that was it. He finished up and became a batsman in Newcastle and never really bowled again. So even though, yes, there was that disastrous spell, I think it's wonderful that from playing in a, you know, the northern New South Wales side, he jumps into the test team and it's a fairy tale. And I think it's wonderful that, you know, someone who bowled absolute uncontrolled disaster material could get in. There's hope for us all uh, yes. on that front. And obviously could land them on his day, but, yeah, it it, it, it wouldn't be easy being catapulted in like that. Uh, one quick correction before we wrap up Nerd Pledge. Last show we talked about Jeremy Nash's 351, and I, I missed his clue. Uh, he'd given me a clue which sort of uh, directed me back towards the mid-1980s, so we went nowhere near it. I think we talked about... Wayne N. Phillips for 351. But in fact, he said it, it, somewhere around 85, 86, there was this hint. And so I, I went digging around there and uh, lo and behold, it's connected to the other Wayne Phillips, Wayne Bentley Phillips, who was playing in the sixth test match of the Ashes in 85 when Graham Gooch and David Gower put on a partnership of 351 mm. at Lords. The other nine players in the team made 60 runs between them, so it was quite the mismatch partnership. And the other thing I noticed on this scorecard, there were 50 extras in that innings, 26 no balls. Who bowled 26 no balls? They, they didn't record them against the bowler at the time. And also Kepler Vessels came on and had a bowl at some point. That's how desperate they were to break the partnership. So that bowling attack was led by Craig McDermott, who took 30 wickets in the series. Simon O'Donnell played every test in that series. I think Merv Hughes was opening with McDermott, I reckon I'm right in saying, and I'm not sure who the other seamer was, possibly Jeff Lawson. Uh, so but that was, you know, as we said earlier when talking about no balls, back in the era when they would call them. So I, I get it. That wasn't unusual to see 26 no balls bowled in an innings back then. Indeed, it wasn't unusual to see 26 no balls bowled in an innings 15 years ago. It's, it's, a, it's a modern phenomenon uh, that they've not been called. Anyway. Thank you to Kerry Sandu, by the way. We didn't thank her for her um, kind contribution of 264. And I look, it may uh, may not have been John Watkins, but I'm glad we just had the chance to set the record straight to an extent. That has been Nerd Pledge. If you'd like to play the game, you just go to patron.com, spelt P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patron.com slash the final word and sign up. And in doing so, you can help us keep doing this show week in, week out until the heat death of the universe. Let's now check in very briefly with what uh, a friend of the show has been up to. Sachin. It's your birthday. Happy birthday. Sachin. Sachin. It's your Sachin. Take it away, Jeff. Happy birthday, Sachin. This is the time when Sachin Tendulkar wishes happy birthday to other cricketers mostly and occasionally other people on the internet. Who did he wish happy birthday to this week? Well, Sanjay Mandraker got a happy birthday from Sachin in the same week as he was being discussed for um, being on the list of the slowest ever centuries when Dom Sibley made that... Uh, oh, well, we'll talk about it later. Um, th- that 100, Mandraker had 100 off 
400 odd balls at one point. Um, so that's enough to get you on the happy birthday section list. Dan Raj Pillay, the Indian hockey captain who played in four Olympics, four World Cups, four Champions Trophies and four Asian Games and captained wins for India in an Asian Games and an Asia Cup. That gets you on the happy birthday section list. Uh, they're very original with the names of the tournaments, aren't they? Oh, how about the Champions Trophy? How about the World <laughs> Cup? The, the, other, the other thing I liked in Sachin's social media this week was he was just live tweeting the test match for a lot of the time. Like, oh. it's the same as you or I would do, just watching and being like, oh, bowling a bit fuller in this session. Oh, that was a good delivery. <laughs> and that was quite, quite wholesome and nice to see. And then to round it out, he sent out a big happy birthday to none other than Harsha Bogle, who gets on the happy birthday section spreadsheet uh, and, and spent most of his birthday dealing with the absolute flood of notifications from everybody who follows both he and Sachin, which is a large combined audience, shall we say? Yeah, I didn't even consider putting up a public uh, happy birthday to Harsha. I just did it discreetly and sent him a video of Winnie and myself to hope he was going well and of course he was because it was a a day when he was as you say absolutely bombarded I had a look at that tweet from Sachin a number of other tweets from other uh, members of the Indian cricket fraternity uh, and and they they do love Harsha over there as we know um, but um, yeah imagine that imagine having literally hundreds of thousands of people wishing you well on your birthday well that was Harsha's experience yesterday and we hope he had a great day I'm sure he had a great day I know he had a great day he said as much that is happy birthday, Sachin, for another week. Let's take a brief intermission and then we'll be into the West Indies test match against England at Old Trafford. Jeff, with it being the end of a month... It means that as a result, and those who've listened to the show for a long time will know, another Wisdom Cricket Monthly is coming out, as is the custom. Mm. Mm. Hang on. So at the end of at the end of a month, when like like in a, in calendar terms, a month, mm. that's also the time when a publication that comes out once a month would come out. It signals it to them. They know that as right. the month ends. Given the magazine's mm-hmm. called Wisdom Cricket Monthly, it's their obligation mm-hmm. to their subscribers to supply them with a new magazine. Right. Does it have to specify when in the month it comes out? You could have a monthly magazine that came out on the 30th and then again on the 1st and just have, to, you know, it would still be monthly. Like a month would not have elapsed, but it would still be one per month. It, it's true. And, I mean, we, we talked about the, 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 uh, the, the, the Women's Weekly um, magazine, which comes out monthly, which did complicate mm-hmm. matters when we learned that information. But I can guarantee that Wisdom mm-hmm. Cricket Monthly comes out once per month and it is out. It's, it's not this weekly. Week. Not weekly. It's not like the Women's okay. Weekly. Wisdom Cricket Monthly right. is a is a twelve times a year operation. And I, look not not thirteen times. Not lunar monthly. Uh, the the strict uh, the strict Gregorian <laughs> Every time they talk about the Julian calendar, I just think the Brendan Julian calendar um, <laughs> and then just imagine what the poses would be, you know, what the, the sort of shirtless at the barbecue, you know, just, just raising one eyebrow to the camera, that sort of thing. Maybe holding a strategically placed you know, rock melon or something over sensitive areas, you know. Well, he would be, he would be used to that from, from his getaway days. Remember 
BJ when yeah. he stops playing uh, first class cricket in the end of the 2000 2001 season hung up the boots in order to be a presenter on Getaway at age 31 mm. he he, uh, he gave up cricket comparatively so if you want poses BJ's got them for you but if you want magazines of the cricket variety the best one in yep. the world is Wisdom Cricket Monthly which he could he could roll up and, and hold in front of the tools you know just to make sure it's safe to go on the wall uh, there, there's a lot of stuff in, in this month's issue which, could he? which you could well, couldn't he? I mean would a rolled up magazine suffice cover, I, cover I the tool hope so <laughs> I certainly hope so. Look, in this magazine, in this issue, one thing I'm interested to read is Steve Smith talking about his 10 defining innings. Uh, you or I could probably have written 20 pieces about Steve Smith's defining innings, but this is his own take, which is particularly interesting. Yeah, I've pumped him on this a number of times about his uh, you know, crucial turn. When I've interviewed him in the past for this magazine, Wisdom Cricket Monthly, indeed, about his, his most important innings. And he always points to that knock at the Wacker uh, and another one uh, at Centurion the hundred he makes not long after the, the ton at the Wacker the one I like to come back to is his half century at Nottingham in 2013 uh, when wickets were falling around him before Hughes and Agar came together for that massive stand Smith was the only player to show any resistance. So I'm looking forward to seeing whether that is in his top 10 defining innings. There's a profile on Stuart Broad, which is timely. Derek Pringle uh, has got into that. Stuart Broad is the, is the cover star of this month's edition of The Mag. There's a big feature. Uh, I love which... Brendan Julian. He's just holding a cantaloupe <laughs> strategically. <laughs> uh, there's, a, there's a big feature, uh, the start of a six-part series that will be uh, rolled out. Um, uh, over the next six editions of the magazine about cricket's diversity problems. So uh, Phil Walker, who's the editor-in-chief, and Joe Harmon, who's the magazine editor, have started that process mindful of the uh, the conversation around cricket and diversity in England has really um, came to the boil in the last four or five weeks. So they're, they're emphasising uh, that in this particular feature. Um, there's another lovely feature as well, which I contributed to. Uh, they, they got 16 writers to talk about their favourite cricket photograph which I mean forget about mine mine's in some respects boring and I've talked about it that many times about the 99 World Cup but um, there's a photo to look out for there that Christian Ryan um, has plucked out which is an absolute gem I won't spoil it but it's an incentive in itself to get hold of the magazine there's a profile on Ed Smith England's Chief Selector uh, by Andrew Miller. There's an Everton Weeks tribute from Rod Edmund. Uh, Dan Gellin's writing about the South African saga that we talked about on the show a couple of weeks ago, plus the world according to Dizzy and uh, the A Cricket Life segment, which they do each month, once a month even, with Wacko Eunice. So <laughs> plenty to get your teeth into in this issue. The offer for Final Word listeners at the moment is six issues for £9.99 if you're in the UK. Uh, you just need to use the little URL. It's a bit.ly URL, which is a, a shortened URL. So bit.ly slash WCMTFW, as in Wisdom Cricket Monthly, the final word. Anyway, we'll put that in the show notes so you don't need to like tattoo that onto the back of your hand. But uh, you'll find it there. You can go and get six issues for 10 quid, which is a pretty good deal no matter which part of the world you're in.
Yeah, and we, we talked about this a lot uh, during uh, the pinch hitter when it was being released through the, the, the England lockdown and the COVID uh, isolation period and so forth. But Wisdom Cricket Monthly do a power of work to support freelance cricket writers like Jeff and myself and a number of others around the world who, um, who, who do this for a living and they are fantastic to work with and they do a great job um, with this magazine month after month after month. It is an outstanding publication. We're so proud to be associated with them so do consider grabbing yourself a very cheap and discounted uh, subscription six editions for £9.99 at bit.ly forward slash WCMTFW that's all in the show notes Hi everyone you're listening to The Final Word it's Isha Gua here with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. It's one all in the England-West Indies series up at Old Trafford. England levelled up the series in a game where we didn't really expect a result. They lost a lot of time to rain throughout the game. They batted very slowly in their first innings of 469. Uh, The West Indies were only four down when they were approaching the follow-on mark and so we thought they would just bat well past that and uh, put an England win, well, a win for either team out of the equation. And then suddenly things turned around. There was a collapse. England were able to come back in and and pile up some runs and and set a target on the last day. So a result uh, almost out of nowhere at one stage, Adam. Yeah, that, that, that's right. So if you look at the scorecard on Sunday afternoon, it's really drifting at that stage where um, Brathwaite and Brooks are batting quite nicely together. At one stage, it was 2-4-2 for four. They were, you know, needing to get to 270 to avoid the follow-on. And then Stuart Broad. I mean, well, Ben Stokes initially, and I mean, the Stokes storyline through this test match, he was everywhere. I mean, he made the slowest... 100 of his first class career he faced more than 350 deliveries in compiling 176 he left more deliveries than any England batsman has in any innings on the Crickviz database and then he backed it up with the quickest half century for an opener in English cricket history so of course they were chasing <laughs> declaration runs but um, it, it, it sort of reflected the 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 scope of this player but the 11 over spell, on day four, um, he bowled 57 short balls. Not all of them were bounces, but short, by the way, they divide the pitch up. So 57 times he bent the back and hit the pitch hard short out of 66 balls in that spell. That is such hard work. It's under. It's why Neil Wagner's a, a phenom in, and why yeah. he's a model of fitness because he can do it over and over again. Well, as Brad Sanderson observed on Twitter during that spell, it's, Stokes does a pretty good imitation of Wagner uh, on his day and this was his day. So he bowled those... Those two 11-over spells, one on in the first innings and one in the, in the second innings, which set it up and then Stuart Broad followed him in and bowled a long spell himself, initially with the old ball around the wicket. He got the second new ball and then he and Wokes cleaned up. They took between them hmm. six for 45 was the collapse all told, but three apiece. They were both under a lot of pressure coming back into the attack as well. As I mentioned, the game was drifting and, you know, I put it on Twitter. We were inches away from a number of people saying, well, that Stuart Broadfellow, he's probably finished. He, you know, he's probably... I, I, yeah. I, I, it was easy to tell. The, 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 the sense was that, gee, oh, the, a lot of complaining from Broad last week, but maybe he's just not as good as he used to be. Gets the second yep. new ball in his hands, bowls magnificently and had been doing so with the old ball too, following Stokes. 
Wokes does likewise. And in the entire game, the shifts, there was eight wickets in that session, including a couple for England when they when they got the chance to bat in their second innings. And it gave Joe Root the chance to be enterprising on day five with a declaration that was issued, I think, 11 overs into the final day. They gave themselves 85 overs to bowl the West Indies out and did it in 70, knocking them over for 198. In the end, a thoroughly comprehensive victory. But the way they got there, as you say, Jeff, we, I mean, it, it didn't, it wasn't easy. It was clever. It was good cricket. It was really fun. It was, it was inventive, which yeah. isn't necessarily yeah. something I'd expect from Joe Root's captaincy. The, the, uh, I've never thought that Broad is finished. You only have to watch how well he's bowled recently. But I, I was inches away just from posting some smart-ass take on, online when he was none for 60-odd in that, mm. in that innings about, you know, well, it's good that all the people who got mad about him being left out, you know, hope they're enjoying this. And then I thought, don't do that because as soon as you do that, he'll take three for none and... Like that's what he's like, and and lo and behold, that's exactly what he did. <laughs> I was very very relieved that um, that caution in, in a rare instance got the better of me, um, making a, a shit joke. But nonetheless, yeah, like what a performance it was that he turned on. You know, not just there, but then in the second innings as well. So on that last day, suddenly you've got West Indies in a position where they can lose the Test match. They've been in a match where. It just didn't really look possible for them to lose. They would bat out a draw and in doing so, they would retain the trophy. But with the way that uh, that England came out and, and smashed those declaration runs, Stokes 78, not out of 57 balls. They sent Joss Butler out with him late on the fourth evening and, and that didn't work. He was bowled off the inside edge third ball for a duck which was just the most Joss Butler moment ever you know you think oh finally here is a chance for him to just express himself just just really go out there and just just be universe Joss and instead it was clunk oh, sorry Kimo Roach has bagged you <laughs> first over of the yeah it, it was so frustrating for those of us who want Joss to do well because he was on a hiding to nothing one but more to the point, they didn't. He didn't need to do that. At the very, I, I, look, it was a selfless act to just swing from ball one. He didn't need to do that. I, I mean, there was as as we saw in the next sort of half an hour or so, going at a runner ball and milking the field was more than sufficient to get them to the close, knowing that they'd wake up the next day and be able to unload. And that's kind of what happened with Stokes. You know, on a fresh day and having not just been in the field for six hours or whatever it was by the time that Butler and Stokes walked out to, to start England's second innings. But yeah, it will be the catalyst for a number of people to write Joss off again and that's fine. He made 40-odd in the first innings um, and he took an important catch off Stokes' bowling um, just on the cusp of tea on day five. Uh, whether um, Joss Butler has a test career after this series is yet to be seen. In fact, it'll probably hinge on what he does in the third match. But yeah, using that one discreet instance of him chopping on second ball in the second dig when he's told us to swing as hard as he can. I don't think that's a reasonable uh, thing to judge him on, but yes, it definitely happened. So the way it was set up was West Indies needing uh, about 310 in theory to win or you know, really they were set 85 overs to bat out yeah. and suddenly you know, doing that on the last day is tricky when you're facing skillful operators like Broad and, and Wokes and they crashed through the first four wickets in quick time so West Indies were 37 for four when that fourth wicket went down. So it was a, a really good partnership between Shamar Brooks and Jermaine Blackwood. 
loved the way Jermaine Blackwood played. He he came out just playing a shot of ball <laughs> as he does. He was he was about seventeen off twelve balls at one point. He hit three fours in an over off Sam Curran. He was going over cover point, going over mid off, and then he said, "All right, settle down a bit, take a few deep breaths," um, and played really nicely, particularly against the short ball attack from Stokes around the wicket. He he managed that so well until the last over before the tee break, and then just got a brute that he couldn't couldn't keep down and and gloved it and popped up in the air and Butler was able to get around to catch. So Jermaine Blackwood made 55, Shamar Brooks made 62, but sort of after that, um, the England's bowlers were able to, to get through the tail and it just didn't really look like they were going to be able to, to take it through for that draw in the end. They got to the 70th over, so they weren't that far away. But, you know, but I think just from the point where they were set, you've got 85 overs to bat out, you thought West Indies were a bit a bit nervy about that. Yeah, I, I think that um, it was just. I mean, it's that it's that M word, isn't it? It's momentum. And in the morning, stanza those eleven overs. Stokes was dropped in the second of those overs, having hit fifteen off the first. Campbell put him down, running in from long off a, a very straightforward chance, and their shoulders dropped, and it was a shit show for the next ten of those overs. And then by the time they walked out to bat, I think they realised that it was uh, they were up against it. So they went from being in a position where, yeah, a day earlier they were in control of proceedings to it being a very different reality by the time they started their second dig. But again, that, that goes to show the importance of first innings runs, doesn't it? And remember that Jason Holder did insert England um, on morning one. And you can yeah, kind of understand why. It was, it was wet, overhead, you know, all the usual cliches about England. But um, they didn't uh, take – they took, I think, th- I think they took three wickets on the first day. Of course, Sibley and Stokes batted for a number of hours from pretty much drinks, I suppose it was, on day one until the close. So they batted three and a half, four hours. And they added they batted for another three hours um, together on, on day two. And, yeah, I mean, they'll, 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 there was criticism on the way they elected to – compile their innings conservatively um, but that discounts how well West Indies bowled on morning two they beat the bat 24 times in the first session of the second day and and Mm. hit the outside edge of the bat a further eight times which didn't go to hand of course so I mean you know it was still an important session because England weren't scoring quickly on day one if they lose both of their set men right there well the West Indies probably win the test match so they Mm. they played um, old-fashioned, you know, as it is, cricket, and it paid off because England, as you know, Jeff, having covered them a lot over the last few years as well, they didn't make 400 in the first innings ever. Uh, this was a ever. new thing. <laughs> this was a new thing. So in the in the, in the the Bayless era, I haven't got the stat, the stat um, close to hand, but, I mean, you can count it on one hand. In the four years he was in charge, the number of times they made it to 400, whereas now, under Chris Silverwood, it's happening consistently twice in South Africa and this week they've done it again getting to 469 before they declared on the second afternoon I think they declared maybe they were bowled out I can't remember now but either way they, they, they went deep into that second day and yes they lost the third to rain and so be it but Dom Sibley's been integral to them making it in, to 400 in the first innings twice in the space of like four test matches and yeah he's not pretty to watch he's hard to watch he has one mode, it seems, playing test cricket, and his scoring options are limited. But he doesn't get out. He's a platform to build on, and 
he means that the, they, the, the players around him have the confidence to, um, to to do what they need to do. That, and that was the case with Stokes, who, you know, after getting through that tough bit on uh, on the second morning, he was able to really put the foot down, um, albeit conservative by Stokes standards, but he was able to get inventive because the platform was laid. I mean, it's, it's not that complicated test cricket. If you make a lot of runs in the first innings, more often than not, you win. I think it, it's always easy to bag out captains who send in the opposition. Why most of them don't do it <laughs> more mm. often, I think, because the, there's the backlash. But I also think you don't you don't invite someone to bat at Old Trafford. Like, it's just such a... When they prepare test wickets up there, they're, they're batting surfaces. You know, the way Steve Smith made his double there, Joe Root's double a couple of years before that. They're, even the way England batted in the fourth innings of, of that Ashes test last year where they batted for a very long time. You know, it's a, it's a surface that's pretty helpful to bat on for the first few days at least. And so that... I thought was a major misjudgment. The, the conditions might be in your favour, but you've got to look at the, the surface and, and the venue as well. So, And not to mention the bowlers. I mean, Shannon Gabriel battled through the second dig at Southampton. They didn't make a change to their 11. Uh, and suddenly he's rolled out having to bowl on the first morning of back-to-back test matches. It just felt like if they were going to play the same 11, if they had the chance to bat first, that was the smart money. Alternatively, change your 11 up use the depth of the squad a lot of players there at the moment and give yourself that option to bowl first but yeah it felt like it was um, that, that was a bit too cute yeah especially with a player who's had so many injury problems in the past you think you mm. know let let Gabriel go full tilt for the first and the third tests and and you know have a blow in the interim but nonetheless so, so there was that long long first 162 overs they batted out in that mm. first innings England Sibley 120 from 372 balls you won't be seeing a lot of highlights from that innings, um, five boundaries. <laughs> five boundaries in 372 <laughs> balls. And and the funniest bit of the test match for me was watching him start to try to slog to, you know, where they were sort of getting towards the end and it was like, okay, well, it, it's time to, to hit out or get out because, you know, Pope and Butler will come in next. And he was like, it was like tr- watching someone try to remember where they'd left their car key. <laughs> hang on, what, how do I, what do I, hang on, so I've got, to, I've got to lift the bat up and then swing hard and he eventually hold out, like hit this ball so high, you know, he came down with snow on it and got caught out at deep mid-wicket the first time he played a, a, a properly aggressive shot all innings and then Butler proceeded to come out and bat quite cautiously after after Ollie Pope for, for his standards he was going at a, a strike rate of 50 so you were like well hang on why did Sibley get out because these other guys aren't doing anything any differently yeah and, and I get why he was given the instruction to you know at that stage to go and Sibley's got a strike rate in T20 cricket of 122 I saw today so I, I I've not seen any evidence of it, but he must be able to, to clear the pickets with one of his it's just hypnosis. two or three he, shots through mid-wicket. scorers to write it down. Just, yeah. You are feeling sleepy. I, I just like the fact, and, I, and I've talked about this before in, in reference to, to bowlers that send them down at about 125 or 130 kilometres an hour, how they get written off. And Sam Curran's kind of an example of this, I suppose, and he took important wickets in this test match as well in both innings. We sort of think that, well, if, if you're not hitting the radar in excess of 135, 140, even 145 in the Australian team where you're perhaps not much use. The same applies to someone like Dom Sibley. If you were, were describing him to somebody and saying he 
closes his bat face off, he faces mid-wicket and he plays almost all his balls there um, and he can't really drive through the offside, you'd say, well, <laughs> he probably won't be a test cricketer. But what I like about it is there's still space in our sport in the longest form of the game for someone with immense powers of concentration. And that is sufficient um, if you've got a, you know, a good defensive technique and crazy concentration. Well, well, there's room for you as well. And, and, he, and, and there absolutely is. I mean, not every opener who is limited with their stroke play makes it. Alistair Cook's an obvious one. But it feels like, yeah, he, he sort of is in that slipstream, isn't he? There, there was Cook and, and now there's Sibley. Kemar Roach, uh, unluckiest man in the world over the last oh. week or so. Finally got those wickets though, didn't he? It had been since August last year, his, la- his previous, I think his previous test wicket was Virat Kohli last year and he'd went, Oof. he'd gone, uh, you know, nearly 12 months and 87 overs in test cricket, a couple of none for Southampton last week and then he got two and two balls and he was on a hat trick and I thought, well, this would be fitting, wouldn't it? After all these test matches <laughs> I've been to in England, having never seen a test hat trick, he's going to pick one up in front of 14 people but um, it didn't, didn't quite come off, but to his credit, Kemar kept running in and bending his back. I thought he bowled nicely in this test match. So, um, But I expect that they'll have to make changes to their bowling lineup back to back to back test matches. England played it smart by having that flexibility built in from the outset, whereas the West Indies went same lineup. I'm not quite sure how they'll pull this off, but Roach is an aging bowler. Gabriel is not well at the moment. His body's knackered, and Joseph's got an injury. So how they pull this together, with the exception of Raheem Caldwell, who, who will play as the spinner, I'm not quite sure how they've whether whether they've thought this through. Uh, so I mean, time will tell if their net bowlers and their squad bowlers have had adequate preparation um, from what they've been doing while they've been sitting on the bench the last couple of weeks. Well, they they've been going well with one holder, so why not have two holders? True, uh, true. You know, Raheem, the dream can can bowl the overs of 10 men and, uh, you know, aside from that, it doesn't really matter. We'll just get him in there. Get him in there. Um, <laughs> West Indies, they've batted really nicely in, in this series, which I don't think we were necessarily expecting. So five half centuries in the match. Brooks made one and Blackwood made one in the second innings. Brathwaite, Brooks again and Roston Chase in the first. There's some frustration there that none of those players went on to bigger scores, but they haven't been overawed by the the challenge, and it is very challenging. You know, with the way the ball moves around, the way Wokes has that control, the way you know Broad was able to bring the the viciousness to the movement when he needed to. The 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 huge proportion of wickets he's been getting bowled and LBW from bowling a bit fuller and a bit straighter and it, it, England were just constantly at them and they still managed to find a way through for, for long periods of time so that seemed really significant to me there was never a stage where where they were just smashed through in in a handful of overs like we've seen so often with West Indies teams at times in the last couple of decades. Yeah and Look, they have at different periods through this series been quite resilient. Again, I feel like we're just hitting the cliche jar time and time again tonight, but it's accurate. I mean, even the way, as I mentioned before, the way they bowled on the second morning, um, the way they batted on the fourth day uh, when before Broad and Wokes cut sick, um, it did look like they were going to comfortably pass that that, that follow-on uh, target and kind of save the game. That was largely due to Craig Brathwaite, who came into this series really battling, but has sort of recovered at the perfect time, a couple of half-centuries won at Southampton as well. And Jason Holder spoke to this uh, 
at Stumps tonight on, I think it was on radio, when he was talking about the next stage in this team's development is going from being, you know, competitive with the bat over a session and doing what Dom Sibley and Ben Stokes did and batting for a day. And he's right. That is the next logical step in a developing side. Yes, they're missing two of their first choice top six and, you know, that's created an opportunity for Blackwood that probably wouldn't have been there. Even Brooks. I mean, Brooks looked glorious, especially yesterday on Sunday in the first dig. The way he drives through point is, it really is something. Uh, He's got the game, I think, to do well at test level, uh, even though he's taken a while to get here. He's 31 years of age. But, yeah, you can you can build on that. But I suppose the, the, the question is, um, can they, you know, bounce back quickly enough to, um, to to pull off something special next week? Because now with England, wind at their back, you know, broad at full flight, bowlers like Anderson, we haven't even mentioned Joffre Archer and his, I mean, quasi-suspension this week due to the, the COVID bu- bubble um, that, that, he, um, that he broke going home between test matches. That was a massive story on the first day. It meant he was omitted from the side for this week but given that England have got all those resources at their disposal if the Windies were to win next week it's going to require something really special but I don't think they'll throw in the towel either that, that doesn't strike me as that kind of Windies team One last little observation that was pretty wonderful from Ben Jones at Crickviz Jermaine Blackwood has scored 17% of his career runs, so better than one in six of the runs in his test career, have come in the fourth innings versus England. <laughs> he is the fourth innings specialist. It's the hardest place to bat and, yep. and he's excelled at doing it. So we'll be tuning in with great interest to the third test, which will be coming up soon. We'll be talking about that on next week's show, such as the uh, ability of back-to-back matches that we we can squeeze them in. The other bit of news that came through in the last couple of days is that the Indian women's team will not be coming to England. There was a big tri-series planned with South Africa and India. Uh, the BCCI have said it's not going to be possible to get them there with international flights to the UK suspended um, now that COVID is absolutely ripping through India and so it'll be just a bilateral series with South Africa which will be extended to replace the games they would have played against India so they'll just make the most of getting South Africa into the country and and, um, really bulk up the schedule there. Yeah, you can you can look at this a couple of ways. I've seen some cynical sort of takes on social media about this today, but it, it, it's fairly clear to me the BCCI wanted this to happen. Uh, they wanted their women to come out to play in England, sort of building on the momentum that this side's been able to develop in the last couple of years, since the 2017 World Cup really, isn't it? Every time that India turn out in a bilateral series or a, or a tri-series or whatever it is, that they're improving and they're getting closer to, um, uh, you know, maybe not uh, overtaking Australia. Of course, they're pumped in the World Cup final, but being right there with Australia. So they wanted them to come to England and play in this tri-series. So it's, it's sad that they won't be able to do so due to COVID. It's a reminder though, isn't it, that despite all the good news that there seems to be around cricket today, even even though that, that, that World Cup was was delayed formally today by the ICC, there's like a sense of certainty now about the path ahead. Of course, the uh, the fixtures for the Australian summer have been released. We've had a couple of test matches in England. We've got the one day as between England and Ireland taking place next week, which I'm actually going to be at. I'm going to be in the in the bubble for those down in Southampton, which should be fun. In fact, this time next week, I'll probably be recording the podcast from the bubble, but we'll, um, we'll come to that um, later. Uh, but all the same, there is still this sense 
sense of we've got to remember, we've got to keep it in perspective that at a moment's notice, it, it could all go tits up again. And it's unfortunate that this series has hit the wall. And But hopefully, fingers crossed, um, it will mean there'll be more opportunities for the South Africans when they're out here. And the last little item on our news list, a curious one. Ian Botham being elevated to the peerage. Uh, what is a peerage, Adam? As a resident UK expert, let's cross <laughs> to Adam Collins in London. What is a peerage? How does the House of Lords work? What, what does any of that mean? Well, if you think the Australian upper house is a fucking circus, no. <laughs> well, the, the Australian Senate is more embarrassing than the House of Lords, but the way the House of Lords operates is just so antiquated. It's just a, a ridiculous chamber, really, uh, where you don't need to be elected to the Lords. You are appointed to the Lords for life, indeed. And the report from the Times on Saturday, the newspaper over here, is that Boris Johnson has agreed to make... Ian Botham, a lord, on the basis of the support that Botham provided to him uh, during the Brexit stoush. So, I mean, it's pretty dispiriting. But there's no reason to question that report. Ian Botham has, was asked about it by The Guardian on Saturday and said that um, he wouldn't sort of confirm nor deny it. It's not proper practice to talk about the speculation in the paper and so on, but that seemed like a pretty bloody well brief story to me uh, on the front of the newspaper uh, on Saturday. So I, I'd be flabbergasted if it isn't pretty much on the money. So, yes, that's, that's the... Uh, the privileged position you're in if you're the Prime Minister here, you're able to appoint a number of different lords and he's made the choice to make it both of them and it doesn't mean that he'll how, need how to sit... How much room do they have in the, yeah, in the this chamber? Is it. Like, it seems like there are people getting appointed all the time. That's right. Surely they're not dying fast enough to... <laughs> like, how, well, how many seats have they got? Yeah, right. Well, there are 775 seats in the lords but you don't need to all go. So you, you only go when you sort of... Uh, feel the urge to go there. And remember, they... they when, some it, of them when it's are, not pheasant hunting season or, you know... Yeah, when, as I understand it, and I don't have a sophisticated understanding of how the peerage system works, but there are these hereditary peers. So when, when you die, you essentially pass on your lordship to um, your successor and so on. So, as it should be. <laughs> yeah, and the, these life peers uh, that, that you often hear criticised as a result. So, and, and, and again, there's, there's appointees as well, which, which is one of these. So it's, it's a fairly... Um, it, it's not what I would call a chamber of parliament that gets a lot of coverage because uh, the, 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 obviously government sits in the lower house as it, as it is in Australia, but it, it's nowhere near as... Um, party organised, I suppose, as we're used to, because there's no elections. And yes, there is each member of the House of Lords aligns themselves to a party, but yeah, it, it hasn't got the same oomph to it, I don't think. And if you want a sort of sense of you know both of his politics, that's all out there on the on the public record. In addition to the the Brexit debate, but there is also a pretty funny clip that does the rounds on Twitter, kind of every other day. I think Jeff from 1986 when Botham was on a panel show with a bunch of Scottish high school students, and they absolutely tore him apart. So if you're uh, if you're into that kind of thing, but yes, uh, I don't know, which it, was supposedly part of the inspiration for the character of David Brent in The Office. How could it not be? I mean, I, I, I've, I've watched this. So many times that clip, and I mean, he is David Brent. Well, he was David. Yeah. I mean, I don't know whether he's David Brent as a sixty-something-year-old, but as a thirty-something-year-old, or probably a twenty-something-year-old, possibly even in eighty-six, he he is David Brent. I mean, how could it not be inspired by that? It's just he's a it, it's a carbon copy. 
And, and it's referenced in the show when, when Brent says that one of his inspirations is Ian Botham. You know, sure, sure, I've punched a few coppers. Sure, I've smoked, smoked a, a few doobies. doobies. <laughs> um, look, but, but look, the way it... I mean, I'm laughing about this so that I'm not furious about it because if you're criticising a system of hereditary peerage where you say you get to sit and decide on legislation because of because of your lineage and you're saying well that's bad and that's archaic and that shouldn't happen instead you replace it with a system where rich powerful people appoint other rich powerful people who they already know and like it's the same thing it's just as nepotistic it's just as corrupt and this is this is an observation more generally than the uk but everybody listening to this show we live in a, a society where there is still a nobility you look at you know you look at feudal countries and French Revolution and whatever else and it's like oh there's a wealthy nobility and there are the peasants well that's still how it is the nobility is just less formalised the titles are less formal but the entire systems of government we have are rich people doing favours for other rich people that is all it is that is the there's no ideology there's no reason behind it it is just rich people doing favours for their mates. That's how the system of government works in Australia. That's how it works in the UK. That's how it works in the US. All of their policies, all of their tax cuts, everything that they claim has some deeper reason behind it is just rich people doing favours for rich people. That is all it is. And if you can start to see through that, then it might be useful. A nice sharp little bit of political discourse to end the podcast today, Jeff. Given it's nearly one o'clock here and I'm probably going to be waking up at about four o'clock with the baby, that's a really nice place to leave it, I reckon. Yeah, that's a, that's a, the look on your face says you need to sleep. Um, <laughs> this has been the final word. Thank you to all of you again for listening in. Thank you especially to the people on our patron page for supporting the show. You make us real you complete us um if you want to join in the fun there patreon.com slash the final word thanks to bad producer productions our podcast label i, I like saying we're on a label it makes it sound, <laughs> sound very like um, very fancy dc uh, with the editing and jay and astrid with everything else behind the scenes uh, thanks to cbus and to wisdom cricket monthly go and click the link in the show notes uh, thanks to adam for staying up late with a small child who's going to scream at him in a couple of hours time thanks to jeff and also uh, just a reminder again that on the weekend show this week we'll be back with jimmy nisham and tons of Pledge. If you've sent us a note on Patreon or an email or a tweet about your Nerd Pledge number, we'll, we'll deal with all that on the Friday show as well. It should be fun. This has been the final word. We'll uh, drop in for the weekend. And other than that, we'll be back next week when the Wisdom Trophy series is completed between West Indies and England, plus a million other things that will happen between now and then. Thanks for being with us once again. We'll see you next time. Bye. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself And there's some stories I can tell you